This is the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. We exist to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us. We hope you enjoy this week's message. Good morning. How are you guys doing? <laughs> Sounds like you're okay this morning, but you need a little jolt of, uh, of energy. It's, uh, it's cold outside, isn't it? How many of you love, love the cold? You're, you're in for this time of year. Yeah, it's about half. About half. Some of you are not even sure what's going on. Um, yeah, so it's funny how rolling back your clock like we did last week can just mess you up a little bit. It's one hour, right? It's one hour. Uh, but sometimes it seems like the weeks following that are a little bit up and down. Um, we're going to start out this morning in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 5. Um, we've been talking about uh, the gospel, the entirety of the gospel, what the gospel is, and how the gospel affects all that we are and all that we know. We talked about uh, the fact that the gospel is relational. The gospel last week, we looked at it's holistic. It deals with all of who we are in all of God's creation, not just human beings. This morning, we're going to look at the gospel as transformational. We're, gonna, we're going to uh, let God speak to us about the transformational nature of the gospel, that the gospel takes root in us and begins growing, begins shaping and changing us. Uh, this past week, we as a nation on Thursday celebrated our Veterans Veterans Day. And I was thinking about that and texting with friends throughout the day uh, that I'd served with. And as I was thinking about this message and the transformational nature of the gospel, I, I think anyone who's a veteran would say there's certainly a, a before and after uh, in your life from serving. There's a you before and a you after, and it changes you. And it changes uh, so many things about you. The way you talk, the way you see things, the way you process things, the way stress affects you, all kinds of different things is shaped by that. And I was thinking about how much more so that should be true for those of us who have encountered and been swept up in the gospel through faith in Jesus Christ. That our testimony should be the most transformational thing that has ever happened to me in my life has been coming to know Jesus Christ. That there is a distinct before and after. And some of you might have the testimony that many of us have who grew up in church, which is, I don't really remember a before I believed Jesus is who he says he is. But there is certainly a before that became fully real for you, for almost all of us. There is a before we began to walk in active pursuit and cooperation with God's spirit and transforming work in our lives Let's, let's start in Hebrews chapter 5 this morning. Let's start in Hebrews chapter 5. And we're going to, to look at Hebrews 5. Normally what we'll do, and normally what is uh, my conviction, is that we, we take a passage and we work fully through it. But this morning we're going to, to let Hebrews 5 be a challenge to us and instructive to us. And then we're going to talk about the gospel and this issue of transformation in our lives through the story and the life of Peter. And my challenge to you is going to be, as we're dropping in and journeying with Peter through his relationship with Jesus Christ and the life that he had after coming to faith in Jesus and being used by Jesus, 
that you would ask God to show you where you are in that story, where you are in the work that Jesus was doing in Peter's life and the work that he does in our lives today. Let's look at Hebrews, though, starting out, chapter five, beginning with verse 11. We have much more to say about this, about this. And the, the, this is the high priesthood of Jesus in the order of Melchizedek. We can't go into all of that, but that's what the author of Hebrews has been talking about is the, the priestly ministry of Jesus in our lives and our growth in our relationship with God. We have much more to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Let me, I want to pray for us, and then I'll, I'll say a few things about this passage and about the nature of spiritual growth. And then we're going to go back and we're going to enter into the life of Peter. And we're going to walk with Peter through his journey with Jesus and his apostleship. Let's, uh, let's pray, though, as we begin. Father God, do what only you can do as we look at your word this morning. Lord, don't leave us uninterrupted in this space at this time. God, don't leave us here throughout this service and going home the same way that we came in. Holy Spirit, move and stir. Use your word to change our lives to grow and mature us. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see. God, minds to understand and hearts to receive what you have for us this morning. Father, I pray that we would see new things. We would hear clear calls from you, God, and our answer would be yes. I pray in Jesus' holy name, amen. All right, a few things about this passage. It's really interesting. The author of Hebrews starts out and he says, look, we've got a lot more to say about what we've been teaching you, but it's hard to make it clear, he says in verse 11, because you no longer try to understand. So at some point, the recipients of the letter of Hebrews had just decided that they kind of knew everything they wanted to know. They'd grown to the point where they were satisfied. And what's interesting about this, when you look at this issue of Jesus as the, as the high priest, um, what, what the author of Hebrews here is saying is that for us to continue to, to teach you and you to continue to receive, you're going to have to move past old patterns and friends. Old patterns and friends. Renowned New Testament scholar F.F. F. Bruce says this about this verse in this passage. He says, there's sluggishness showed itself in a disposition to settle down at the point which they had reached, since to go farther would have meant to com too complete a severing 
of old ties, to complete a severing of old ties. What F.F. Bruce is saying is that for likely the Jewish recipients of this letter, for them to, to finally release the old traditions, the old patterns of the sacrificial system and priesthood and to fully embrace Jesus now as their high priest, as the one who not only um, brings them into right relationship with God, but sanctifies and grows them, transforms them and changes them, would be too complete a severing of old ties, both theological and relational, right? It was going to be uh, too difficult for them to, to release what they had believed so long and grow in this area theologically, and they'd have to leave some friends behind who just couldn't get where they were. But I think if you look at the rest of this passage, he says, in fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers. Now, it's not that they all ought to be teaching within the local church. We understand when you look at the wider New Testament that that's a, a calling and a special gifting that God gives some as he gives different giftings to all throughout the body. But he's saying you ought to be able to expound the truths of the gospel and the deeper things of God, but you can't. You still need, need milk, not solid food. He's using this kind of nursery narrative. And he says, anyone who lives on milk, still being an infant or being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. He's, basically, he's saying, by, by choosing to remain on milk, you guys are missing out on the deeper teaching about how Christ, the high priest, transforms us. And he says, solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. He's saying, some of you are remaining spiritual infants by your choice, by your choice. And it's a challenge. And I think one of the things that we can understand from this passage is that spiritual growth and transformation is to be normal in our lives, right? It, it is the path that we should be pursuing. That's part of what the, the author of Hebrews is getting at when he says, by now you ought to be teachers. There is a, a consistent pattern of growth that should be present in our lives. And I think most of us, we want this. We know that, that, that growth is good and right in lives, right? And most of the time, the disappointment that we deal with is with regard to ourselves in ways that we, we haven't grown. I'm, I'm disappointed at times by so much of what I still am. And I'm disappointed at times by so much, so much of what I'm not. I'm disappointed at times by what I can't seem to get right. And I'm disappointed at times by what I can so easily still get wrong. Uh, in How People Change, a book by uh, Tim Lane and Paul David Tripp, they say this about this issue of change. It is so easy to coast. Now, can we just agree with that? It's easy to coast, isn't it? To kind of do life, hit church up fairly consistently, and just coast. We've been accepted into God's family, and someday we'll be with Him in eternity. But what goes on in between? From the time we come to Christ until the time we go home to be with Him, God calls us to change. We have been changed by His grace. We are being changed by His grace. And we will be changed by his grace. God's goal is that we would actually become like him. His goal is to free us from our slavery to sin, our bondage to self, and our functional idolatry. So that we can take on his actual character. It's a powerful statement by Lane and Tripp. But I think it's absolutely true. Let's go back then and, and by illustration in 
the life of Peter. Let's, let's see how this works itself out. And I hope you will be able by God's spirit and presence to find yourself here at some point in Peter's story and be challenged. Let's look at his, his initial calling by Jesus in Luke chapter five. Luke chapter five. I'll roll on here and reference these. You, you're free to just follow along on the screen if you want or your device or Bible, however you want to do. Luke chapter five. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, which is the Sea of Galilee, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by fishermen who were fishing, uh, who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, that's Peter, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and, and let down the nets for a catch. Part of what Jesus is saying that I think is applicable to us as a church is he's saying, hey, Peter, go where the fish are. If you, if you want to catch fish, one, you've got to cast nets, but you've got to cast nets where the fish are. A lot of, a lot of discipleship and evangelism truths in there. Verse five, Simon answered, master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I'll let down the nets. A little bit of sarcasm there. Like this is their professional uh, their profession, their vocation. This is what they do. They've done this all their life. They knew the Sea of Galilee like the back of their hand, but they're like, okay, teacher. I mean, I'm not saying that's what you do, but since that's what you do, uh, we'll do what we do based on what you say. So they go out. Verse six, when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell down at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. The next few verses reveal to us, uh, Jesus called to Simon Peter, he says, hey, leave your boats, leave, leave your actual vocation of fishing, come with me, I'm going to teach you to be a fisher of men. And Jesus, uh, or Peter leaves everything and he follows him. There's this interruptive call that Jesus issues into Peter's life. The beginning of all change and transformation is not you working harder. It's you receiving by the grace God makes available to you through faith in Jesus Christ, the call of God in your life to leave an old way of life and to follow Jesus. To say, God, I understand I am a sinner in need of a savior. Every day I'm racking up for myself through my own rebelliousness, nothing but your wrath. But I know that in spite of that, while I'm still a sinner, you sent your son to die for me and you love me and I repent of my sin. And Jesus doesn't say here, hey, Peter, you've got to understand everything. He just says, leave this and follow me. I'm going to teach you as we go. And Peter does. Peter's the, the highlight of this story right here. Now let's turn over to Mark chapter eight or back, I guess, to Mark chapter eight. Just a, a few pages back in the Gospels, Mark chapter 8. So Peter travels with Jesus along with the other disciples, the apostles that Jesus calls. He is intimately close with Jesus. He's watching Jesus teach. He's hearing it. He's getting private instruction as a disciple of Jesus. He's seeing Jesus heal people and perform miracles that he's never seen anyone do before. In Mark chapter 8, verse 27 
says, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. Now, Caesarea Philippi was on the, the very edge of what would have been considered Jewish territory. They're pushing out into the Gentile world now, which was something Jews didn't do. But Jesus takes them out there to teach them something. Mark 8, 27 says, on the way he asked them, who do people say I am? He's like, hey, what's the word on the street about me? Right? As you hear people chatter, they're saying things to you they won't say to me. What's, what's the word on the street? They, kind of as a group, replied, some say you're John the Baptist, others say you're Elijah. Still others, maybe just one of the prophets. And Jesus gets pointed and direct and says, but what about you? Who do you say I am? Now, who answers here? Peter. Peter answered, you are the Messiah. This is a powerful statement for a first century Palestinian Jew. Versed in the Old Testament scriptures, waiting for the anointed one, the Messiah of God who would come and rectify all the wrongs and set the world right and begin undoing everything that had gone wrong as a result of sin. There's a sense in which to a degree, Peter gets it here. He says, you are the Messiah. And Jesus warns them not to tell anyone about him. Jesus knows that there are things that have to play out before he gets to Jerusalem that final time and is crucified. And he doesn't want to shortchange anything. Now, let's just keep going because Peter speaks up here and he gets it really, really right. But he's about to get it really, really wrong. Verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man which was his phrase for himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Now this, they had no construct for this. They had not been able to discern this, though it is throughout the Old Testament. They had not been able to discern that this is the way God was going to act. This is how the Messiah would come. They wanted a triumphant king. They wanted a warrior. They wanted somebody who was, gonna, who was going to lead the legions of Jewish zealots to overthrow Rome, the dirty, filthy oppressors militarily, and set up an earthly kingdom there. And so this is, this is like a, a gobbledygook that Jesus is talking about here. Verse 32, he spoke, he spoke plainly about this, plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. It doesn't go well when you try to rebuke God. You don't have the intellect for it, nor the place in the created order. But Peter's like, bro, step over here. I think you've had too much wine. Right? He begins to, he begins to rebuke Jesus and say, this is not how this goes. And then Jesus turned and looked at his disciples and he rebukes Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan. That had to sting. You see Peter like, hey, there's no call for that, right? I mean, that's below the belt. Get behind me, Satan. A powerful statement. You talk about going from the heights of right to the depths of wrong real fast. Peter, Peter goes there right here. He said, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. That's a powerful sting. He says, Peter, you're not thinking in line with the heart and the mind of God. 
You're thinking in line with the heart and the mind of, of man. You're confessing some of the right things, but your heart and your mind are not in the right place. Powerful statement. Peter gets it right, and Peter gets it wrong. Turn back a, a few pages to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. Peter continues traveling with Jesus, and the time comes for Jesus to head toward the cross. Some of you will remember this. He's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's in anguish over this eternal split fracture that's about to happen in the Trinitarian relationship between God the Father, God the Son, the Holy Spirit, never known any kind of fracture or disconnect there. His boys who are closest to him, they're praying for him, but mostly sleeping. He keeps coming back out. He's, he's wrestling. He's burdened. Uh, they keep falling asleep. He's talking to them. Verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions, who we know from the other Gospels, is Peter, reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Uh, the early church fathers said that, that when, when Jesus disarmed Peter, Jesus disarmed us all. Because it's hard to train to love your neighbor and train to kill your neighbor at the same time. And I'm not talking about law enforcement, military. I'm, I'm talking about the kind of cultural norm in the, in the Midwest and South that thinks we should all go around packing heat to shoot everybody. Most of you'd miss anyway. Kill a bunch of bystanders. Put your sword back. Peter's there. He's armed. It takes a lot of courage to draw your sword and to begin a fight with those that have been sent by the chief priests and the elders. What they said went, and Peter knew that in his day. Uh, this was an act that Peter knew could cost him his life. And yet he does it. So his passion is there, but his brain's not. He hasn't been, he, he's not thinking again still. The thoughts of God, he's thinking the thoughts of man and Jesus says, put, put away your sword. If you live by the sword, you're going to die by it as well. Verse 56, which I, I don't know if we'll have up on the screen or not. Uh, Jesus unpacks this a little bit and he says, look, you don't have to come at me with swords and, and billy clubs and, and, and weapons of war. I'm not leading a, re a rebellion here, at least not one that you understand not in the way that you understand it. He said, this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets may be fulfilled, may be fulfilled. Jesus understands the storyline of scripture. He understands his place in the storyline of God. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Peter went from ready to fight to running in fright, right? Once he realizes that this thing is out of control here, He's gone. And so are the rest of the disciples. Look down at verse 69. 
down at verse 69. Jesus is arrested. That begins playing itself out. Peter sitting out in the courtyard, verse 69, and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. This is Peter, first to jump out of the boat, first to speak up, first to draw his sword, first to boldly proclaim just earlier that evening, hey, uh, guess what? Um, I'm not going to deny you. These other losers may around the table, but not me. Not me. I'll go wherever you go. I'll die with you. Verse 71, then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. You're a Galilean. We know the area you come from. Verse 74, then he began to call down curses and he swore at them. I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed and then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. Peter gets it right. Peter gets it wrong. All the while, God is at work in Peter's life. God's not letting go of Peter. Turn over to John chapter 21. And you and I, we typically want, uh, we want disown Jesus verbally, hopefully. But we disown him quietly in little ways here and there. When we bow to the pressure of culture and people around us. When we know we should say a word and we don't. When we know we shouldn't join in with something and we do. When we know that God has given us clear instruction in our lives in one area or the other, but we know it's not going to make sense to people around us or be in line with where our culture is going. And so we don't actively follow it. In all those ways, church, you and I deny Jesus. Chapter 21 of John, let me just set this up a little bit. Jesus and some of the other disciples, some of his friends, they've gone back to fishing. Peter doesn't know what to do now. Did I say Jesus or Peter went back to fishing? Peter, not Jesus, right? So Peter goes back to fishing with some of the other disciples. And, and after, after the crucifixion of Jesus, after his denial of Jesus, Peter doesn't know what to think. Well, maybe he wasn't who I thought he was. Maybe this isn't what I thought it was. Tell me, many of you who've been a believer for quite a while, that there hasn't been one time or another where you thought, I don't know that this is all I thought it was. I know God doesn't seem to really answer me. Peter just goes back to what's comfortable and familiar. Verse four, early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? <laughs> no, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in 
because the large number of fish. Do you, do you understand what Jesus is doing? He's going back to that, that first encounter. Because God is a God of do-overs. He's a God of fresh starts, of new beginnings, of second chances. Verse seven, then the disciple whom Jesus loved, which was John's way of referring to himself, which I just really enjoy. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he'd taken it off and jumped into the water. See, grown men didn't do this back then. Grown men, or people who pass for grown men do all kinds of things in our day, in our, our culture. But grown men in Peter's day didn't just wrap themselves up and jump out of a boat into the Sea of Galilee. But he does it. The other disciples followed in the boat, right? Uh, they, they're wired more analytically. They're like, will we get there three or four minutes after Peter will? Yes. Will we be drier? Yes. They followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals where the fish, with the fish on it and some bread. Jesus has prepared a little, a little meal for them. Peter's sitting down with him. Verse 15, Jesus begins to speak. And in grace, he reinstates Peter. He asks them three times in a row, hey, do you love me? And Peter says, you know I love you. And he says, feed my sheep. Do you love me? Yes, feed my lambs. Do you love me? And verse 17 says, Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. He says, and take care of my people. And Peter, follow me. You are indeed going to die a death like I did. Follow me. He comes to Peter. He calls him back again. He reinstates him. He reminds him that nothing that Peter can do can fracture the relationship he has with Jesus. Peter doesn't have that power. Jesus, uh, Jesus doesn't allow us enough power to run far enough that he can't find us. God doesn't grant us enough power to do enough wrong to sever a relationship that has been given to us in new life through faith in Jesus Christ. You and I don't get that kind of power. But he was, uh, he was struggling. Peter had gotten it right. He'd gotten it wrong. He'd gotten it right. He'd gotten it wrong. He had denied Jesus. He'd gone back to an old way of life. Jesus had come and he'd reinstated him following his crucifixion and resurrection. Now turn over to Acts chapter four. If you're familiar with the book of Acts, you know that in Acts chapter two, when the Holy Spirit comes on the believers, the day of Pentecost and fills them, that Peter stands up and he gives the initial message through which humanly speaking, the early church is born. He goes from denying Jesus, from running and scattering in fear to standing up to the very people who had Jesus crucified and seeing thousands come to faith through the power of his message. Thousands come to faith through the power of his message. Now, if you look at chapter four, we'll begin with, um, we'll begin with verse one. Let me see what verse I said for you guys to begin with. So I'll make sure I'm not past you. Let's begin, let's begin at verse eight. But I, I, I wanna tell you this. Um, here you find the temple guard and the Sadducees coming up to him. You find the same circles of people that came for Jesus that night. 
chief priests, elders, Sadducees, teachers, all these guys ran in the same circles, all operating under the authority of the temple leadership. Now, Peter and John have healed a lame beggar. And when people watch this, they're so curious, Peter and John begin talking to them about Jesus. And these authorities come to them, they don't like that. And they ask him, by what power did you do this? Right? Verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, If we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame, and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, Hey, he doesn't leave any confusion here, but whom God raised from the dead. See, Peter's had a flip now. Peter's thinking and acting out of the thoughts and the heart of God. And he's saying to the religious people, they're on the other side now. They're thinking with the the mind and the heart of human beings. They're opposed actually to God, though they think they're speaking on behalf of him whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone the builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. By this, Peter is declaring Jesus to be God. Full well knowing the consequences that could come to him for this. He's also saying he's not impressed by their status as elders, as Sadducees, as people sent by the chief priests. Now look at verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. There was something about Peter and John that carried with them now at this point the residue of Jesus. And they look around and say, well, we we can't deny the guy was healed and everybody saw it. So we're not sure what to do. Verse 18, verse 18. Then they called them in again, that's Peter and John, and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, We cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. God goes on to use Peter powerfully as the first 11 chapters of Acts unfolds. He gives Peter a vision for his Holy Spirit and his redemptive power being poured out, not just on Jews, but on Gentiles. That shakes Peter's life and changes him. So much so that Peter and Paul and a few others, Peter and Paul, the main Uh, verbal proponents of the gospel going to the Gentiles in the exact same way that it goes to Jews in Acts 15, there's this gathering, this meeting of the apostles and the elders to consider this question. Can, Can people become right with God, followers of Jesus? Can Gentiles do it without having to become culturally Jews, religiously Jews? And Peter says, absolutely they can. I've seen it happen. Peter says, I've seen it happen. I've seen the same Holy Spirit that's filled us fill them. And James sends out a decree that says, absolutely, let's not put up any barriers to Gentiles coming 
to faith in Christ. Peter is one of the main proponents of that. But flip back a little bit to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. The the Jerusalem conference in Acts 15 happens roughly uh, mid-late 40s, uh, 45, 48 AD. And then Paul records a little episode that he had with Peter in Antioch just a few years after this. So, So Peter stands up and he valiantly makes a case for there being no distinction before God now between Jew and Gentile that the Spirit comes on them equally. They're saved in the same way. They're grown in the same way, sanctified in the same way. And then we find this, as Paul writes in Galatians chapter two, when Cephas, now Cephas is Peter's Aramaic name. Uh, Peter is the Greek translation of Cephas, uh, just meaning rock. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, that's from Jerusalem, He used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, when these highfalutin Jewish believers from Jerusalem arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Peter seemed to have this near lifelong battle between courage and fear, courage and fear. Verse 13, the other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Verse 14, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, Paul is saying what's at stake here is the very heart of the message of Jesus Christ that says salvation is available to all people regardless of race, ethnicity, color, creed, It is available equally and it is available in the same way and only in that way by grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul's saying they're not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. I said to Cephas in front of all of them, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? He's saying, you know that you've been set free by the gospel and you're living like a free person who knows God. And yet, you're falling back into old ways, friend, and you are advocating the same chains that you used to live with be put around other people. Peter gets it right, and he gets it wrong. But as you study Peter's journey, the distance between when he gets it wrong begins to get longer and longer and longer as he has changed and grown so that eventually we have two books in the New Testament that bear his name that he wrote. wrote. We have a a gospel, the gospel of Mark, that is Peter's testimony given to Mark in prison. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter writes this, starting in verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. How do you think Peter learns about God's great mercy and the living hope he has? He learns it by living with God in the ups and downs. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Peter's got to be thinking, if it could spoil or perish or fade, it would have done it for me already. But God stayed with me. 
This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Peter knows this. Peter's already paid a price for the gospel by this time. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with the inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving, present active tense, the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter would come to be able to write such profound theology like that as he walked with God and was changed by the power of God over the course of his life. Let me just give you uh, quickly three things we can, we can take with us from Peter's life about gospel transformation. The first is that it's normative. Gospel transformation is normative in the lives of followers of Jesus. It's expected. It's, it's a sign of the proper outflowing of God's grace in a life. You and I should not be what we were two or three years ago, five or 10 years ago. But I'll tell you this, growth, uh, growth involves some pain, doesn't it? Growth involves some pain. It's normative. It's also progressive. Progressive. What I mean by that is it's a process. It's a process, but it's a process in one direction. Though it has starts and stops, high points and low points, it's far more organic than mechanical. It's not like putting Lego blocks together. It's like watching a tree grow. It's not a very exciting thing to watch, but they do grow over time. Sometimes they're in bloom, sometimes they're not. It is what Eugene Peterson called a long obedience in the same direction. It's normative, it's progressive, and finally, it's cooperative. Gospel transformation in our lives is a kind of ongoing dance between you, the effort that we see uh, the author of Hebrews 5 saying, uh, you're frustrating your own growth in the gospel because you've ceased to allow yourself to be trained in it. It's an ongoing dance between you, the Holy Spirit, and gospel-centered friends, Christian community. Relationships rooted in Scripture. And just to give you some guides, if you're like, man, I, I want to know where I am. Am I growing? What does that look like? I want to just give you some places. Look at the, the Great Commission, the, the Great Commandments, the fruit of the Spirit. Take those three and dig in and say, how am I? Am I reflecting the truth of these being lived out in my life? Fruit singular, and then there are all those graces given. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Look at John 13 through 17, where on the, the evening of his, before his arrest and, and coming crucifixion, Jesus is pouring out what's most important. And he says, here's what it looks like to really follow me. It looks like service as he washes their feet. And he says, he came not to be served, but to serve. He says, it looks like love that the world's gonna know you belong to me by the unique love you have one for another. And he said, it looks like unity. He prays, he pours his soul out to God saying, let them be one as we are one. Go to the Sermon on the Mount and let it wreck you for a while. Let God grow and stir in you. I want to 
read to you a story about a, a woman named Mabel from a book by John Ortberg, John Ortberg entitled The Life You Always Wanted. It's a true story. If you'll permit me just to read for a couple of minutes. The state-run convalescent hospital is not a pleasant place. It is large, understaffed, and overfilled with senile and helpless and lonely people who are waiting to die. On the brightest of days, it seems dark and it smells of sickness and stale urine. I went there once or twice a week for four years, but I never wanted to go there, and I always left with a sense of relief. It was not the kind of place one gets used to. On this particular day, I was walking in a hallway that I had not visited before, looking in vain for a few who were alive enough to receive a flower and a few words of encouragement. As I neared the end of this hallway, I saw an old woman strapped up in a wheelchair. Her face was an absolute horror. The empty stare and white pupils of her eyes told me that she was blind. The large hearing aid over one ear told me that she was almost deaf. On one side of her face, there was a spot that had been eaten by cancer. There was a discolored and running sore covering part of one cheek, and it had pushed her nose to one side, dropping one eye and distorting her jaw so that what should have been the corner of her mouth was the bottom of her mouth. As a consequence, she drooled constantly. I was told later that when the nurses arrived, the supervisors would send them to feed this woman, thinking that if they could stand this sight, they could stand anything in the building. I also learned later that this woman was 89 years old and that she had been there bedridden, blind, nearly deaf, and alone for 25 years. Her name was Mabel. I don't know why I spoke to her. She looked less likely to respond than most of the people I saw in that hallway. But I put a flower in her hand and said, here's a flower for you. Happy Mother's Day. She held the flower up to her face and tried to smell it, and then she spoke. And much to my surprise, her words, although somewhat garbled because of her facial deformity, were obviously produced by a clear mind. She said, thank you. It's lovely. But can I give it to someone else? I can't see, you know, I'm blind. I said, of course. And I pushed her in her chair back down the hallway to a place where I thought I could find some alert patients. I found one and stopped the chair and Mabel held out the flower and said, here, this is for you. It's from Jesus. Mabel and I became friends over the next few weeks and I went to see her once or twice a week for the next three years. Her first words to me were usually an offer of hard candy from a tissue box near her bed. Some days I would read to her from the Bible and often when I would pause, she would continue reciting the passage from memory word for word. On other days, I would take a book of hymns and sing with her, and she would know all the words of the old songs. For Mabel, these were not merely exercises in memory. She would often stop in mid-hymn and make a brief comment about lyrics she considered particularly relevant to her own situation. I heard her speak of loneliness or pain. I never heard her speak of loneliness or pain, except in the stress she placed on certain lines in certain hymns. It was not many weeks before I turned from a sense that I was being helpful to a sense of wonder. And I would go to her with a pen and paper to write down things she would say. During one hectic week of final exams, I was frustrated because my mind seemed pulled in 10 different directions at once. And all of the things that I had to think about were crushing in. The question occurred to me, what does Mabel have to think about? Hour after hour, day after day, week after week, not even able to know if it's day or night because she's blind. 
So I went to her and asked, Mabel, what do you think about when you lie here? She said, I think about my Jesus. I sat there and thought for a moment about the difficulty for me of thinking about Jesus for even five minutes. And I asked, what do you think about Jesus, Mabel? She replied slowly and deliberately as I wrote, I think about how good he's been to me. You know, he's been awfully good to me in my life. I'm one of those who's mostly satisfied, I guess. Lots of folks wouldn't care much for what I think. Lots of folks would think I'm kind of old-fashioned, but I don't care. I'd rather have Jesus. He's all the world to me. And then she began to sing an old hymn. Jesus is all the world to me, my life, my joy, my all. He is my strength from day to day. Without him, I would fall. When I am sad, to him I go. No other one can cheer me so. When I am sad, he makes me glad. He's my friend. This is not fiction. Incredibly as it may seem, incredible as it may seem, a human being really lived like this. I know her. I knew her. How could she do it? The answer, I think, is that Mabel had something you and I don't have much of. She had power. Laying there in that bed, unable to move, unable to see, unable to hear, unable to talk to anyone, she had incredible power. For anyone who really saw Mabel, who was willing to turn aside, a hospital bed became a burning bush, a place where this ordinary and pain-filled world was visited by the presence of God. I want to leave you both Peter's life and Mabel's life as a challenge. And I just want to ask you this morning, today, today, what are you doing? What are you doing to cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit in your life? in gospel-centered relationship with others. The gospel is unendingly, unendingly transformational. It changes us. Let it be so in your life and mine. Let's stand and pray. Father, I thank you that no matter where we are, When we belong to you, you are there. We can't run too far. We can't experience too much loss or trauma or pain. We can't make too many bad decisions to tear ourselves away from your redeeming grip when we belong to you in Jesus Christ. God, not even bedridden in a convalescent home, This morning, God, don't let us be satisfied. Don't let the word said about those in Hebrews be said about us. That at some point, we just stop paying the price of growth because we don't want to let go of old ways, old patterns, old thoughts. God, maybe even old friendships. Give us the grace and the power to press into you. Lord Jesus, change us, lead us, guide us. In your name and for your glory. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us online at the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us.